should have tested this beforehand. <laughs> Good morning, my name's Alex. I'm on staff here at St. John's. It's lovely to see you all here. Can you hear me? Is that loud enough? I'll try and stay close to the microphone. In its 34 seasons and 750 episodes, the TV show The Simpsons has become well known for its uncanny ability to predict the future. Uh, the most well-known one was an episode that aired in the year 2000, which showed Trump as the president, which was a hilarious joke until it came true 17 years later. Although the Simpsons actually got the year wrong, they placed his election bid in 2024, which doesn't bode well for next year's US election. Smartwatches with voice recognition as well as video chat are featured in a 1995 episode when smartwatches with this kind of technology didn't come out till 2013. And the world obviously only became familiar with video chat in the last few years. Uh, Richard Branson went to space in The Simpsons eight years before he did it in real life. And there was even a 1993 storyline about the worldwide spread of a virus which causes mass panic stoked by conspiracy theories. <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice to know what happens uh, in the future? And not just being able to make astute cultural observations which sometimes come true, like in The Simpsons, but to actually know what will happen. Wouldn't it be nice to know how this all ends up? The way that we think things will end influences our view of the present and of our lives now. Are we headed towards a utopia or a dystopia? Are we progressing to something better or spiraling into disaster? What will happen in the end? The Bible assures us that God has control over the present and the future. He is 100% in charge. But often it doesn't feel that way. Hospitals are bombed in Palestine. The generosity of the Uluru Statement from the Heart is rejected by a majority. Our test results come back and the news isn't good. An important relationship in our lives is shattered and seems unfixable. How will this all pan out? Does God really know what will happen in the end? Well, we're back in Malachi for our third and final week, you might be glad to know. Uh, as we've noticed for the last couple of weeks, Malachi the prophet is speaking God's word to a group of God's people in Israel who are jaded and cynical because of the hardship they've gone through. The Israelites had experienced defeat dispossession and exile and now in Malachi's time they were back in the promised land but the experience of exile was ongoing. They were a colonized people living under the oppression of the Persian Empire. It didn't look like God was in control. Did God really know what was going to happen in the end? Well again we wade into the middle of a courtroom scene the Lord Almighty versus his people. God presents his accusation. Israel scornfully questions him and God responds. Uh, there's Bibles in some of the pews, so if you would like to turn to Malachi to follow along, you can. I've given up on the PowerPoint slides for the week. It's the last book in the Old Testament, just before Matthew. 
So chapter 3, verse 13. You have spoken arrogantly or harshly against me, says the Lord. Yet you ask, what have we said against you? So a few times now, God has spelled out exactly how the people have complained against him. But again, they're insolent and distrusting. What do you mean we've spoken harshly? So God reminds them what they've been saying. In verse 14, you have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper, and even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. As we learnt two Sundays ago in Malachi chapter 1, the people, led by the priests, were going through the motions of offering sacrifices in the temple, apparently serving God. But their sacrifices were second rate. They weren't giving God their very best. And this reflected Israel's contempt for his love. And as we noticed last Sunday, the people had seen the injustice in their community, which played out in corruption, oppression and cruelty. But God pointed out that they were the perpetrators of the injustice. They weren't serving God because they didn't, they didn't share his heart for justice. So God's people have decided that it's futile to serve God. What do they gain by serving him? Nothing from what they can see. The Israelites are pretty sure that they know how it will all turn out. Those who are arrogant and proud will lead blessed, happy lives. Those who do evil will continue to prosper and get away with it. That's what the Israelites think will happen in the end. God has no idea. So the people have decided to look after themselves, ignoring God and harming one another because that seems to be the way to find happiness and success. When you're teaching a puppy to sit, you give them a treat every time they get it right. When you're trying to get your kids to behave, you might promise them some TV time later. It's a type of training called positive reinforcement. For the Israelites, their experience was a twisted version of positive reinforcement. Every time someone committed evil, they were rewarded for it. Now, we'd expect God to answer with some stinging comeback like he's done previously in Malachi. But instead, this time, the pattern changes. And in verse 16, we hear about a particular group of the Israelites whom we haven't really met before this. Then those who feared the Lord talked with each other and the Lord listened and heard. A scroll of remembrance was written in his presence concerning those who feared the Lord and honoured his name. The Lord has so far condemned Israel for not fearing him. But in this passage, we meet those Israelites who did fear God. They considered Malachi the prophet's words, they talked with one another, and they genuinely repented of their sin. And in order to remember, they write a scroll. Um, maybe this scroll had written down Malachi's prophecies or maybe they made a record of all the ways that God had been faithful to his people in the past. And they did this because they feared the Lord. Fearing the Lord is a right response 
to who he is as our creator and ruler. But it's not a fear that immobilizes us with panic or makes us terrified that he'll fly off the handle without warning. And while fearing God does involve the emotion of fear, uh, it's more than that. It's how you might feel in the presence of something incredibly powerful and completely beyond your control. A massive surf on a stormy day, a wild animal in their natural domain, glorious and terrifying. And even these aren't perfect metaphors either because God's power is much greater than a stormy sea or a wild animal. And God is also completely in control of his power and his power is part of his holy love and compassion. Fearing God involves trust as well as awe. And as we spent time in Malachi, I think we've been confronted a number of times with how glorious and terrifying our God is. We've had a glimpse of what will happen if we continue to scorn God's love and ignore his heart for justice, because the day of the Lord is coming. In last week's passage, Malachi condemned apathetic Israel for their injustice. Uh, He said, who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? And here at the end of chapter three, we see who will be able to endure and stand. In verse 17, on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty, these people who fear God, they will be my treasured possession. I will spare them just as a father has compassion and spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. Does God really know what will happen in the end? Yes. He's the one who controls the future and he will protect those who are his on that glorious and terrifying day. These Israelites who feared God would have probably also been guilty of scorning God's love and showing injustice to others. But here they genuinely repent of their sin and commit to serving the Lord Almighty. And so God promises to spare them on the coming day of the Lord. Now let's read some more of what Malachi says about this day. At the beginning of chapter 4, Surely the day is coming. It will burn like a furnace. All the arrogant and every evildoer will be stubble, and the day that is coming will set them on fire, says the Lord Almighty. Not a root or a branch will be left to them. The day of the Lord is a theme that runs right through the prophets and into the New Testament as well. It's a day of destruction and punishment when God's wrath is poured out on those who reject him and harm one another. And here God tells us that day will burn like a furnace, Uh, perhaps not literally, but it will be a day of total cataclysmic destruction. Living in Australia, we can particularly appreciate the powerful image that Malachi paints, a bleak, ash-filled hellscape, devastated by fire. 
Those who are arrogant and commit evil won't get away with it. Contrary to what the Israelites thought, it seems that after all, they didn't know what would happen in the end. But God does. God will come in his holy wrath to judge and to punish those who have rejected him and harmed one another. But this day isn't just about destruction and punishment. It's also a day of restoration for God's treasured people, for those who fear him. For them, this coming day is actually a cause for hope and joy. God says in verse 2, But for you who revere my name or fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays, and you will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. Then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord Almighty. We see the brokenness in our world. We can feel that this isn't the way things should be. And even our greatest moments of joy aren't perfect. They're only temporary, always marred by sin and suffering. But on that day, darkness will be defeated and the night will be overcome. The sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its rays. It'll be the beginning of a new world of perfect righteousness, where everything is set in its right order and made whole. And the healing that's promised will be a full spiritual and physical restoration of God's people and of God's creation. The waters, the land, Plants, fungi, insects, mammals, birds, reptiles, humans. All of God's creation will be restored to its original intended order and beauty. Ecosystems will be set right. Inequality will be eradicated. Wrongs will be made right. And we will go out and frolic like well-fed calves. And I'm hoping that this video will work because it's very cute and hilarious. <laughs> so these are... Um, we can go on. I mean, we can keep watching it, but probably, you know, probably a bit distracting. Uh, so these are calves from Vermont in the US. It's a northern state where the cattle are put in barns over the winter. And calves are born in early spring when the, winter, uh, when the, when the weather is still bitterly cold, so it'd be dangerous for calves to be exposed to that kind of cold. So in this video, we see these calves getting their first experience of freedom and the sun's warmth. On the day when the Lord comes, Malachi tells the faithful Israelites they will be like these calves, frolicking with absolute delight in the warmth of the sun's healing rays with the elation of sudden freedom. And God promises, then you will trample on the wicked. They will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act. God's faithful people had experienced the oppression and violence of those who did evil, and so God promises them final justice, a complete and resounding victory over evil. 
Well, this concept of God's people rejoicing over the destruction of their enemies is a tricky one for us to get our heads around, I think. It doesn't seem to fit with what the Bible tells us about God's mercy and compassion and how we're meant to live as Christians, loving our enemies and praying for those who persecute us. But in fact, the two ideas can coexist, and that's because of Jesus. Uh, Let me explain. So the day of the Lord was a future event in Old Testament times, but in Jesus' life, death and resurrection, the day of the Lord has already come. In his earthly ministry, Jesus healed diseases, cast out demons, raised people from the dead. He trampled on the forces of evil and death and brought restoration and life to those who feared God. And in his death, Jesus took on the cataclysmic horror of God's wrath. He took that punishment on himself, protecting those who take refuge in him. On that day of the Lord, Jesus made a way for us to experience restoration and freedom. Because of Jesus' death and resurrection, we can trample on our enemies of sin and death. They are ashes under our feet. And that doesn't mean that sin and death no longer exist. That's obviously not the case, not yet. But we no longer, but they no longer have the power to separate us from God. So the day of the Lord has come in Jesus, but there's still a future day of the Lord to come. That's the day that Peter talks about in our New Testament reading from 2 Peter. He says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire and the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. The day when Jesus returns will come unexpectedly and it will be a day of total cataclysmic destruction. But for those who fear the Lord Jesus, it's a day to look forward to. Uh, Peter again encourages Christians You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. We're looking forward to a day when the sun of righteousness will rise, when night will be swept away and forgotten transformed today as the darkness flees before the coming dawn. And we will be like those ridiculous newborn calves, frolicking and rejoicing in our sudden freedom, in the absolute delight of a world made perfect. It will be a glorious, terrifying day. But for those who haven't taken refuge in Jesus, they will not be protected from his judgment. For those who scorn God's love and harm and take advantage of others because they think it's pointless to serve God, the day of the Lord will just be terrifying. Instead of being protected by Jesus, they will feel the full force of his wrath against sin. On the day of the Lord, there will be a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, as Malachi says. But God is patient, and 2 Peter tells us he is waiting to come back because he doesn't want anyone to perish, but everyone to turn to him. 
This is an invitation that's open to all of us. The day is still to come. And so it's still possible for us to consider God's words in the Bible, turn to him and serve him like those who feared God in Malachi's day. And for, for those of us who do fear God and serve him, the day of Jesus' return is a day we can hope and long for. And it's also a day that spurs us to action, that compels us to share the good news of Jesus' victory over sin and death. Because we know what will happen in the end, we're compelled to share our hope. Does God really know what will happen in the end? Yes, he does. The Lord Almighty, our Saviour Jesus, will return and he's told us what will happen. So what will we do while we're waiting? Well, just to finish, I have uh, a story about an Irish woman called Amy Carmichael uh, who travelled to India in 1895 while she was waiting for Jesus' return. She went because she wanted to proclaim the gospel to unreached peoples, so those who had never heard of Jesus, a bit like what Jay, our ministry worker in the Middle East, is currently doing. So Jay will be back in Australia in a couple of years' time, but in 1895, it wasn't so easy to travel across the world. When Amy Carmichael left Ireland, she never went home again. Amy started her time in India by traveling around to villages and telling people the gospel. Uh, but in 1901, she had an encounter which changed her life and her mission. There was a seven-year-old girl named Prina who had escaped from a Hindu temple where she'd been abandoned by her mother as a devotion to the gods, which meant that she would serve as a temple prostitute for life. Prina had fled once before hoping that her mother would rescue her, but her mother had renounced her again, and the temple women punished Prina by applying hot irons to her hands. On this second attempt to escape, Prina came upon a church in the dark where she sought refuge and was found the next morning by Amy. Amy took Prina in and from her learnt about this horrific aspect of the Hindu cultic system. As a result, Amy started to channel all her efforts into rescuing, educating, and caring for destitute children, especially temple children. And as she did this, she introduced them to Jesus. When she reported back to Christians in Ireland, she was always brutally honest in describing the realities of life for these children. And in one letter, she explained it this way. I know that a brighter view may be taken and if the sadder has been emphasized in these letters, it is only because we feel you know less about it. We shall have all eternity to celebrate the victories, but we have only the few hours before sunset in which to win them. Amy Carmichael knew what would happen in the end. She knew the day of the Lord was coming and she wanted to help as many people as possible to take refuge in Jesus before that day. We don't know exactly what our futures hold or how our lives will turn out, but we do know what will happen in the end. The Lord Almighty has told us. Jesus will return, bringing righteousness and freedom to those who have taken refuge in him. Well, let's stand 
and sing our next song together now, or our next hymn together. <laughs> 